When it comes to people that like Christmas, there are two types of people. There are people that love Christmas, and then there are people that love Christmas. Like, take my wife, for instance. She was drafted in the first round of loving Christmas, and some of you are exactly uh, like her in that regard. Our traditions are all the same every year. She loves Christmas. The day after Thanksgiving, we go get a tree. We bring it home. Uh, we put it in the stand. That's my job. And then she begins taking uh, the boxes up out of the basement. And that's one of the, 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 the good things about having back surgery is you could say, honey, you know, I shouldn't do it. And by the way, we're at third down right now. And so she goes and goes crazy all day long uh, decorating for Christmas. Well, one of the things that she loves is her Santa collection. And um, she's been collecting Santas, these ceramic Santas, uh, over 35 years. Whenever she sees one that's really special, uh, she'll grab it, she'll bring it home. And so she, it's not a massive collection, but it is a very meaningful collection to her. And so there are basic rules about uh, the Santa collection. And so I, I, I wrote them down. Uh, don't sit near the Santa collection. Don't touch the Santa collection. Don't play near the Santa collection. Don't eat near, breathe near, look at, or even think about looking at the Santa collection. And you remember that forbidden tree in Genesis chapter 3, that tree in the Garden of Eden? Well, it mentions the Santa collection. In every other spot in the house, you may freely play, but near this collection, the Santa collection, you may not play, for in that day you play thereupon, you shall surely die. It's like Chris Tucker and Rush Hour. You hear the words that are coming out of my mouth? Best movie ever, by the way. And do you get it? Are we clear? You're not allowed to touch the Santa. Well, one day my youngest and I were throwing football in the house. And this is the part of the sermon where you just kind of close your eyes and shake it, shake your head and say, this guy's an idiot. And you're right. So we're throwing the football in the house in December. And the kid goes deep where I told her to go do a button hook, right? Go on up, 10 yards, turn around, catch it, right? And so she goes deep, she misses it. And I throw this frozen rope across the family room and I take off Santa's head. And she hears it, she comes out, we both freeze. And she said, what happened? And she saw the Santa and I said, and here's my answer, you tell me if it was a good answer. My answer was, it's not my fault that your kid can't catch, okay? So was that a good answer? Probably not. Yeah, she didn't think it was so either. Well, there was another guy that almost ruined Christmas, like he tried. Uh, there wasn't a, uh, a Santa collection that he could destroy, but he could actually end Christmas. It could have never happened. His name is Herod, and we're going to look at him today. And if you uh, don't have our church app open, you can follow along with the scripture verse. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, and it is a very familiar story, but what we're going to do is we're going to read it through the eyes of the people that read it for the very first time, sort of picking up the nuances of it to sort of bring out the terror of what was happening and to place ourselves in Jesus's feet and the family of Jesus and their feet to, to sort of catch what the real feeling of Christmas is. So we're, we're continuing this series. We're calling it Bring on Christmas. And what we're doing is we're, we're ending today this short series where we're walking through Matthew. And let me just jump into our scripture verse. It says this, Matthew chapter two, verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, 
during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east, came, or Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, the first thing you're going to notice is that the NIV called these people Magi. Uh, in Bible translation, when you translate it from the Greek to English, what there's, you can translate a word or you can transliterate it. The Greek word uh, for Magi is magoi. And if you were to translate it, the translation would be those who practice the black arts. But what the NIV translators did is they made the English word basically sound like the Greek word. So instead of magoi, they just called it magi. That's where we get the word for it. Now, these people were very, very important to kings in the ancient Near East. When we think of Magi and those who practice the black arts, we think of this guy from Harry Potter, right? In ancient times, you found uh, the Magoi, the Magi, uh, hanging around kings. Because those of you, for instance, who are in business and you're looking for a competitive advantage against your competitors so you can basically own a piece of the market, you're going to find technology, you're going to find leaders, insight, whatever you can do. Kings were the same way. When they were constantly going to war and constantly trying to protect their turf, what better competitive advantage would you have than someone who could practice divination and contact uh, the demons, essentially, to give them information against their um, uh, people who are threatening, giving them a threat? And so uh, we know that these people were very powerful people. And so when the first Christians would have received the gospel of Matthew for the very first time, they would have been taken back by the fact that there were a group of people that practiced the black arts to come and worship Jesus. Like, we're, not, we're told in the Bible and the Old Testament we're not supposed to associate with these people. And the very first people that come and visit in the gospel of Matthew are these very people. Now, this was a common thing in the ancient Near East. Basic, and we do this today. When there's a new um, prime minister in England, for instance, our president will call to congratulate the prime minister. And our president will call different countries and congratulate the new people because we're trying to build an alliance. And so in the ancient Near East, we know from, say, tw- uh, from Suetonius, for instance, say that three times real fast, Suetonius, Suetonius, Suetonius. We know from Suetonius that um, there were a group of magi that came from the east and paid homage to the birth of the emperor Nero. So this was a common thing. So these magi showed up, and it says in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him, all some 25,000 people that lived in that city, started to freak out. Now that's an understatement, because when King Herod got disturbed, it was truly frightening. For instance, He was this insane psychopath who was so paranoid that other people were going to try try to take away his power. He killed three of his sons, strangled two of them. Think about that. He uh, set up a spy network. He killed a whole group of Pharisees. He killed a whole group of competitors. And notice this. History tells us that right before he dies... The, the week that he died, he gathered together all of the most loved people in Jerusalem and throughout Israel and brought them to a place called the Hippodrome. And this is a picture of it. Brought them to the Hippodrome and, and left them there 
And the moment that he died, he had all of those people slaughtered because he wanted to make sure that everyone in Israel was going to be sad when he died. This would be like us gathering together. Who does everybody love? Tom Hanks, Ellen, you know, people that everybody loves. And, and, and that's how crazy that this man was. And so he was none too excited when some people who had the ability to predict the future showed up and said, where's the other king? So look at what Herod said. When he called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them where the Messiah was to be born, why? So he could send a garrison there and wipe out the village. They replied that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the Jewish leaders tell him where the Messiah is to be born. But they didn't know. They didn't know where the house was. They didn't know where um, the couple was. And then Herod called together the Magi and said, go search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. Air quotes. We learn later in the Gospel of Matthew, at the end of the second chapter, that Matthew or that Herod goes and slaughters all of the firstborn males and families that were two years old and under. It was a, a frightening time. Well, look what happens next. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So we have a moving star in the second chapter of Matthew. Anybody that's ever been through eighth grade science class knows stars don't move. Planetary objects revolve around stars. Stars don't move. They stay stationary. So what was it? It could have miraculously been a star that moved. More than likely, what it was is one of three options. Um, Raymond Brown is a really well-known, famous New Testament scholar who said there are three possibilities. One is it's a supernova. You know, a supernova is a star when it explodes. So it could have been a supernova. It also could have been a comet, right, when an, when an, uh, an icy body goes closer to uh, a star like the sun and heats up. It will, it will let gas go by. It will, it will, it's called outgassing. So it could have been a comet or it could have been a planetary conjunction. Uh, here's a picture of a planetary conjunction um, from um, October 2015. More than likely, this is what they were looking at. And I don't know if you know this, but on uh, next week, um, on actually Monday, tomorrow, the 21st, December 21st, there's going to be a planetary conjunction in the middle of the night. So you can go out in the middle of the night and see what the Magi saw. Be really cool. So verse 9 tells us, after they heard the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place. And when they saw the star, Matthew tells us they were overjoyed. All it says in English is overjoyed. But what Matthew uses is four different Greek words and shoves them all together in a sentence to talk about how excited they were. Like, 
What do you do when you get excited about something? When I get super excited about something, I raise my hands like the Pope and keep repeating, yes, yes, I do that. I don't know what you do. Maybe you dance, maybe you start singing. I make my arms like the Pope and say yes. But what they did is look, it says in the original Greek, they rejoiced with joy, great exceedingly. They rejoice with joy, great exceedingly. So basically, Matthew is saying, I'm grabbing all the words that I know that are available in the Greek language to explain what they felt. But when these practitioners of the black arts who had a vision in the East that there was going to be a Messiah that was going to change the world, they followed his path for how many months? We don't know. And eventually it landed and then they saw where Jesus was going to be and they completely became unglued. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, there weren't three wise men, despite what you put in your, you know, your, your, your Christmas scene and that you set out at your house. They were just three gifts. And so people just automatically say, eh, it was probably three. It was probably a big, massive caravan carrying lots of treasures to present to this king. Now, why does Matthew tell us this story? Why would he go to all the trouble to tell us this story about these practitioners of the black arts who are obviously far from God? They're not Jewish in any way, shape, or form. They're as far from God as you can possibly get. Why does he tell us that in Matthew's version, these are the first people to show up? I think there are two reasons. Number one, Jesus demands our everything. Like the real gift that the Magi brought wasn't gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and other various and sundry gifts. It was their homage. It was their worship. Their willingness to say, you're the king of my life. You now run everything that I have. And right now, it's so easy to get caught up in, we want to create the perfect Christmas experience, right? We're going to move everything around. This is particularly tough at this time of the year, right? In this season, we're going to just create this perfect Christmas experience so everyone can experience the, the, the joy of Christmas, right? As disciples of Jesus, when we come together at Christmas, what Matthew is trying to tell us is that Christmas is a time to re-up. Christmas is a time for disciples of Jesus to recommit themselves and say, you know what, I'm all in. I am 100% committed. These magi risking dying from Herod risking everything, they go and they go face down in front of this Messiah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so this Christmas season, we want to be mindful of the fact that as disciples of Jesus, it's not about us. It's about him and about following him. But here's the second thing I think we see in this story is that anyone can find and worship Jesus. Anyone can find and worship Jesus. Who would have ever thought that in the Gospel of Matthew, at least, the very first people that show up are these magi? I want you to think about your friends and relatives that you're just convinced that this year they're just not going to become Christians. I want you to think about your friends, your coworkers, boss, neighbors. You're like, these people are just, 
They're not interested. Well, you know, at some point, someone took the risk to reach out for, to you, thinking you weren't interested. For many of you, someone shared the message of Jesus with you at a point in time when it would have been just very convenient for them to say, I'm going to go on and I'm going to practice Christmas as usual. So I have a couple challenges for people today and this week. First, I want you to text a few of your friends, at least three of your friends, and I want you to invite them to join us for Christmas Eve. Now, we're just like churches all across the country. It's weird this year. I just, I wish we were together. We were planning this amazing service, and now it's going to be through video. We're going to simulcast it. It's, it's going to be a great Christmas experience, but it's going to be different. And a lot of the burden is going to be upon you to sort of host it for you and your family. You're going to have to say, hey, it's time. Let's gather together. Let's all get in the family room. We're going to watch this. And so I just want you to take that initiative and I want you to invite people. You can email them and forward the email that we're going to send out. You can text them and ask you to join them. But the other thing that I want you to do is I actually want you to log on to YouTube. I want you to log on to Facebook. I want you to log on to our our site that specially broadcasts our service. And I want you to make this something that's special for you, for your loved ones and your family. Yeah, you know what? Strange year. Weird season. But you know what? You know what's constant? Jesus, his love for you and me and the power to change lives. And so let's not miss this opportunity over the next four days to bring people to the feet of Jesus that need him most. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for you working in the lives of people who took the time and the effort to reach us. We are here because of leaders and neighbors and friends that committed themselves to be disciples of Jesus and invited us into this grand story. We are thankful for the pastors. We are thankful for the volunteers. We are thankful for the leaders in this church that work so hard in the midst of difficult circumstances to put you first and to make sure that we come together as a church community all throughout the Philadelphia metro area, this country, and the world to come together as a family like we should and celebrate Christmas. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.